0: see them. Okay, so I want to ask you a question. When was the last time somebody really surprised you? Like did something totally unexpected outside the box? I mean, it could be good or it could be bad. For example, I ran my first marathon at age 35 a few years ago. Um the 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 picture is actually from last year's marathon cuz I Posed really well while I was running for the professional photographer and then paid for that photo because I was like, eh, that's pretty good. Um, But if you knew me in high school, that would have totally surprised you because I was not athletic at all. Like, I literally participated in zero sports outside of the mandatory gym class stuff. And I was the best at badminton uh, in gym. So, surprising a lot of my high school friends who didn't know me for all those years in between, other than just kind of Facebook, run a marathon. We all have expectations of people, but it's especially people that we don't know fully who are prone to surprise us when they live or do things outside those box. So people we barely know are like celebrities, politicians, often anybody we only see in part. And sometimes surprise can be really delightful. Um, Another thing you might not know about me, but if you do, I'm a, you know it very well, I'm a big movie fan, and last year, A Star is Born came out. And it was the fourth version of the movie, but... I was completely blown away by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Like, I knew they were talented. I knew she could sing. I knew he could act. But he wrote and directed and blah, blah, blah. This movie blew me away. It was, like, such a good surprise. Does anyone else like the... Like, sorry. Okay, three people. Wow. Okay, tough crowd. I recommend A Star is Born. Okay, now, sometimes context changes things. So I'm going to show you an uncomfortable photo. In 2005... The Clintons went to the Trump's wedding, and back then, it was just, oh, look at all these rich, powerful people hanging out together at a party. But the context of the election in 2016 made this picture, which got dredged up on Twitter a lot, really uncomfortable, and everyone hated it. It's a totally different thing, and I remember seeing this, and it shocked and surprised me, and then it was, like, kind of depressing, because, blah, our whole political system. All right, now, sometimes a surprise can shock people enough to actually change the world. So here's a picture of the late Princess Diana meeting with and caring for orphaned AIDS patients. And this actually did change the world because she, in the worldly way of such a high position, a princess, stooping down and loving and caring and truly kind of embracing the most vulnerable people on the planet, it blew minds like... It really dispelled a lot of fear about how you could or should care for somebody who had AIDS. There was so much fear and so much misinformation about this. And she used her influence, her celebrity, to change the understanding of that and to really broaden the perspective of what can and should be done to love people who are the most vulnerable. Today, we're going to talk about how Jesus surprised people, even shocked people in his time. And this is part of a sermon series we began two weeks ago called The Real Jesus. And during this whole sermon series, which is going to go through April, we're looking at stories from the Gospels. And these are books in the Bible. The Bible is a big book divided into little books. These are the ones about Jesus's life. They're full of stories about his time working in ministry. And by ministry, I mean the time he was going around teaching people, doing things, healing people... It was the years he was active in first-century Palestine. Today, what's known as Israel, that region in the Middle East, it's a crossroads of so much. And he really changed the world starting there. The first week of our sermon series, we talked about life with Jesus, how he called people to himself. And last week, we talked about Jesus, our teacher, how he was a unique teacher in his wisdom, how authoritative he was, but also how what he taught was very much about himself. And as we go through the gospel stories in the next few weeks, we'll see more and more about how he really is the whole point of all this. Because he wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a teacher. He was God who came to the earth for people. And as people got a clue into that, as that information was doled out, it really did surprise a lot of people. And it made a lot of people uncomfortable, too. He did things that were unexpected from multiple perspectives, things that were so outside the norm it caused a huge stir. As he was revealing his purpose and his mission in an uncomfortable way, back then, we also recognized that Jesus is alive. We believe he was resurrected and that through the power of his Holy Spirit with us, he is active and moving and relating to people all over the place. And so what was uncomfortable back then may be just as uncomfortable to us today. So that's what we're going to look at. And uh, would you just kind of join me in praying for a moment about what we're going to look at. God, would you reveal more about your love and your mission through your word this morning? Would you be with us? Would you draw near and care to speak to us as we each need to hear from you? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at something, a short story from the Gospel of Luke. It's in chapter 5. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you can pull it up and it will be on the screens. And it's just six verses, 27 through 32. So Luke 5, 27 through 32. Very brief story, really fascinating. It begins with after this. And the after is Jesus just healed a man who had paralysis, which is... He was walking around healing a lot of people, doing a lot of miracles. That's immediate context there. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, this is, to be honest with you, the kind of Bible story that requires a little bit of historical context. Like, what's the deal with tax collectors in the first century in Israel? Is that like the IRS today, or is it something a little bit different? Why are some people referred to openly as sinners? And if you look through the Gospels, it's often literally with like quotes around them. But especially, who are these Pharisees and why did they get so upset? If you read through the Gospels, that question about the Pharisees, like, what are these people about, would come up a lot. Because they always seem to be around the fringe of, like, whatever Jesus was doing. And they're kind of scoffing and sneering at him and asking him pointed questions and trying to trap him in logic arguments and trying to get him to say the wrong things. Like, why were these guys such enemies of Jesus? They eventually get so upset at him and the Gospels tell us they start plotting to kill him. So what on earth was Jesus doing to offend them so much to make them think he was such a threat? Why did it matter who he ate and drank with? So to understand what's happening and all these details, it's helpful to understand when this is happening. And so I'm going to invite you on a little bit of a journey, a historical journey, a historical adventure. It's one of my favorite kind of adventures And I'm going to do something a little ridiculous, which is to summarize the Old Testament in about three to five minutes, um, which I think will be helpful. Promise. Um, So a long time before Jesus was hanging out in Israel in the first century A.D., God created humans. Yay. And he said, hey, guess what? I made this whole earth and you and we're going to share it together. And this is going to be awesome. And I'm God and I did all this. So just trust me. That's all I ask. Well, guess what? The humans didn't trust him. They were deceived. And so sin became a fact of the world. And when I say sin, I don't mean just a person doing something bad. Sin is anything about the world that is turned against God. It's that lack of trust in him who created everything and all the destruction that comes from that. The world became a bad place because people chose to say, nah, we're good. Don't need you, God. So it got really nasty for a while, but God had a plan. He's going to say, I'm going to pick this particular people and set them apart and share my message through them to the entire world so that the world will be restored. So he told this guy, Abraham, your descendants are going to fill the earth and I'm going to bless the whole world through you and your family. Just trust me. That's all I ask. So, Abraham's family grew a lot, and things happened, and suddenly there's a whole bunch of them, and they're enslaved in Egypt, and then God rescues them out of Egypt. He's a rescuing God, and He says, Hey, look at me, I love you so much, I rescued you. Now it's time to get back to that mission. I'm gonna give you, a, let's put this deal down on paper, or like stone tablets. You might remember the Ten Commandments? God said, Here's how I'm gonna tell you how to live, and it's gonna seem pretty strict. But it's all about trusting me in the plan I have for you. And if you trust me, I'm going to bless you completely. And then the rest of the world will see the blessing I have for you. And they'll come to know and trust me as well. And that's how we're going to spread this good news about who I am, that I'm the one true good God for the whole world. So it's pretty cool because for a while, like on and off, the Jewish people trusted God. And the blessings came, and he gave them this land to live in that was theirs, and all this abundance, but then mostly they didn't trust God. They kind of worshipped other gods for a little while, and fought amongst each other. And in that weakness, then all these other nations came and trampled over them, and attacked them, and the empire of Babylon came and stole all of them, and said, you're ours, and worship our gods instead. And things kind of went to crap for Israel. Eventually, some of them went back to the land that God promised and they were trusting of God and they said, okay, this is going to happen. When's God going to make it right again? That's kind of where the Old Testament ends. But all the while, there were these particular people that God set apart called prophets. And he's like, I'm going to speak to my people through these prophets. And they basically had two messages. They reminded the people of Israel about God's plan and his deal with them. That like, hey, if you live the way God said you should live He's going to bless you, and his plan's going to work through you. So, maybe get back on that. And then the second message was, by the way, God's so good and trustworthy that he's going to follow through on his plan regardless of what you do. But, you know, it'd probably be better if you joined him. So... A few hundred years go by, more empires and nations trample over this land, Israel, and kind of take over, and they want all these resources, and blah, 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 and it's a messy place. And then eventually we get to the first century AD, and the empire in charge was Rome, the Roman Empire. And on the surface, it looked like things weren't that bad for Israel, because Rome let Israel have their own king. He kind of let them, you know, Rome let the Israelites do what they want. Rome was nice in a way that they would like barge over and destroy countries, but then let them do their own thing. And they were real proud about this thing called Roman peace. Like, look, we took over the whole world. Now it's peaceful, but it like wasn't really because they had to barge over and kill a lot of people to do that. So here we are in the first century AD and there is a king, but he's kind of a puppet king over Israel and he's not really Jewish and he did, he did rebuild the temple, which is where the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. But things were different because God wasn't really there. He wasn't really speaking to the Israelites anymore. They weren't really in charge of their own land. Their numbers were down. They were spread out. Because, you know, all these like battles and crisscrossing countries coming over, people just kind of went where they had to go. And even the Jews who were there didn't agree amongst themselves about, like, what do we do? How do we be the Jewish people in this place that God promised, but it doesn't look anything like the promises he had for us? Some people felt the way to be Israel was to battle, to fight off the oppressors, to fight the empire for independence. Some people were kind of okay with this semi-autonomous deal with Rome, and they rode the fence and like probably profited off of that. And there were a few other people who decided that what we need to do as Israel is to look inward at what kind of life makes one properly Jewish. And here we are at the Pharisees. These guys who had some problems with what Jesus did and how he did it. So who are the Pharisees and what are they all about? Well, the priority was studying and living in observance of God's law. And they thought this was the key to preserving their Jewish identity in the Jewish nation. It was about survival as a people by choosing to trust him in his law. And his law, of course, includes things we might be familiar with from the Ten Commandments, like observing the Sabbath, but also other rhythms of life, Jewish holidays. And then there was a lot about purity, about what you could or couldn't eat, how you could or could not dress, and who you should or shouldn't spend time with. So there was God's law, but then over the centuries, in kind of wrestling with and trying to understand this law and get it right, they also added a little bit more to that. There were kind of interpretations of the law, and then interpretations of those interpretations. Just like we struggle to understand with how do we live according to the Bible 2,000 years after it was written, they were trying to understand how do we live according to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, kind of 1,200 years or 600 years after that was written. But these guys were, these Pharisees, they were kind of an unofficial morality police, in a sense. They took it upon themselves to spread their teaching, to call all the Jews to their interpretation of the law, which was pretty strict, and they did care for Israel. There was a a good mission to this in their mind, but they prized purity in all the ways of, of, of observing God's law more than anything. They were teachers, or at the time known as rabbis, and they had disciples, people who followed them and emulated their lifestyle. They wanted their people to survive, and they figured this distinction of looking different from everyone around them was the way. And why would they care so much what Jesus was up to? Well, Jesus kind of looked like one of them in some sense. He was very knowledgeable about God's law. He had followers. He had disciples of his own. And maybe a little bit better than them, he was attracting huge crowds. Like thousands of people would come to hear Jesus talk on a lakeside or on a hill. He was super popular. So he's kind of like drawing some people away from what the Pharisees were doing. But then unique in what he was doing, he also kept talking about this one thing, the kingdom of God and how it's here, how it's coming, how it's at hand. This is different than what they were talking about. They're saying what this is about is just observing God's law, being the Jewish people. And he's like, no, the kingdom of God is here and it's changing things. It's healing people. It's restoring people. Remember, before our little scripture, he had just healed somebody who was paralyzed for years. And he also seemed to have a different interpretation of God's law. He seemed to say that God was coming back, changing things right now, about to change things in a big way. This was a threat to the Pharisees. They saw him as a threat to their idea of preserving Israel. He was leading people astray and further dividing the nation. And they sneered at him. As you hung out with these sinners, okay, so who are the sinners? Now, s- scholars disagree about that, and maybe that 's why it 's in quotes in your Bible a lot, but it could mean a number of things. Just anyone who is living outside of the observance of god 's laws, maybe they just weren't joining the communal practices, they weren 't studying and learning it as much as others. But it could also mean those who were living clearly outside of what God's law would say, such as intermarriage with other people, violating the Sabbath, prostitution, divorce, idolatry. It was a whole spectrum of things in this place that had been crisscrossed by all these empires. And like, life came at these people fast. And as we think about our gospel story here, why were the Pharisees so mad? Maybe the Pharisees could have like lightened up a little bit. You know, life was tough for these folks. Maybe the Pharisees have good intentions, but they were awfully exclusionary toward the sinners. But let's continue and look at this idea of a special group of sinners called the tax collectors. And remember, Levi was one of them. He's the guy in the story that Jesus meets, calls, parties with. It says he was a tax collector and Jesus found him sitting in his tax collector's booth. And what we learn from that and in historical context is that these guys worked at borders. You see, there was this kind of puppet king over Israel, but then he died. And then there were these, like, his descendants ruled different regions. So it was a region divided even amongst itself by different rulers. And there were borders at which there were tolls taken as people crossed from one way to the other on these highways that Rome built. So the tax collectors were basically taking a whole bunch of money from people as they traveled around Rome got a cut, the regional leader got a cut, the tax collector got a cut. And that is why these people were so hated. You might guess Levi was Jewish himself. So Levi, the tax collector, and other tax collectors were working for Israel's oppressors. They were profiting themselves while betraying their people, their families. The tax collectors, more than the distant rulers and leaders, were the present, visible, tangible enemy stabbing Israel in the back. To anyone who truly cared about Israel and the preservation of this nation, they were the worst. And that's why they're singled out among sinners as we read through the gospel stories. So what would it look like for Jesus to ask Levi, this tax collector, to follow him? And then what would it look like from the Pharisees' perspective that Jesus is partying at this guy's house with a whole bunch of other scoundrels like him? It's maybe a little hard in our society because there isn't one clear dividing line like Israel and not. This is the right thing. That's the wrong thing. It's hard to think about what this would be like in our society. But maybe think about who's somebody we would all give a thumbs down to? Who's somebody it's really easy to hate? Well, in a current cultural context, the Me Too movement, maybe there's somebody like, here's a Hollywood example, Harvey Weinstein. If you've been paying attention to the news for the past couple years, I don't need to tell you why this man has become so hated. He was at the center of the film industry. He used his his position of power and authority to satisfy his disgusting whims. Taking advantage of those, he was ostensibly helping He destroyed the careers, the livelihoods, the reputations, even just the lives of women who are trying to make it in this industry. Make it in film. And it was for him just a cheap, meaningless pleasure. The way he abused them. So what if Jesus was around today in L.A.? He's going around, he's preaching amazing things, he's healing people, he's doing miracles in plain sight, And then he meets Harvey Weinstein. And he says, hey, follow me. And for whatever reason, Harvey Weinstein does. But then like a couple weeks later, we see on TMZ.com, Jesus is partying at Soho House with Harvey Weinstein (laughs) and a whole bunch of people like him. How would that feel? Like, what's this Jesus guy up to? Why is he hanging out with him? Now, maybe that's not quite the right metaphor because Levi wasn't the Roman emperor. He wasn't the regional puppet king. What if Levi was kind of like one of Harvey Weinstein's assistants, one of his co-producers, who sent these young actresses to meet Harvey Weinstein, knowing perfectly well what that guy was up to? They were enabling his disgusting whims and profiting off the system. What's Jesus hanging out with him? What's he doing? That's awful. That's the kind of perspective that these people had on Levi and the tax collectors. They were the most hated because they were betraying their own people for profit. So as the Pharisees are at this party and they ask why he's eating, why he's drinking with these folks, Jesus answered them. And we're back here in Luke 5, just verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. So, what's he saying to the Pharisees? Well, first of all, he actually kind of agrees with them. These guys at the party are bad. They're living way off the mark, at the very least. They're the sick ones. Who need the most help, perhaps. Okay, but counterpoint, aren't they the ones who've hurt us the most? Who've hurt Israel the most? Well, Jesus is saying, what if these people who've hurt you the most were shown that there's a better way? Wouldn't that change things around here quite a lot? Jesus is saying something hard to the Pharisees, which is, he's here to help the worst. He's not just here to help those who help themselves. And in saying that to the Pharisees, he's saying, yeah, these bad guys are living off the mark, but so are you a little bit. Are you just expecting me to hang out with people who are like you, people who are pure? And he mentions that word righteous. Let's talk about righteousness. The Pharisees put their trust in what they knew and how they lived. But in their interpretations of the law, upon interpretations of the law, they made the law so strict that it kept people out of it. It was very hard to observe that, to truly live that way. And they forgot the point of God's law, which was to set them apart to be a blessing to people outside of it. God wanted his people to be a sign of God's love, so they would draw near. That was the point of the law, that they would be a sign of that love. But the Pharisees set a bar to reach, a kind of really high hurdle with their interpretations. And when you decide the rules about who can be in or who can be out, and you make it so that you're in, that's self-righteousness. And yeah, it's nice to be on the inside, but imagine you're on the outside of that system. Have you ever wanted to be included in something, in some group, in some venture but the people inside tell you, well, this is what you need to, be to, need to do to be included. Oh, but you're awful. You're unclean. It's, it's just going to be too hard for you. Don't even bother trying. That hurts. It's not just that they were exclusive. Their message was painful to so many people. The rules became more important than the people that they were for. And the Pharisees reacted to these unclean bad guys essentially by, because of purity laws, throwing the rule book at them from a distance. They wouldn't even draw close to the people who most needed to hear why the law was good. But how did Jesus react to tax collectors and sinners? He talked to them. He called them. He taught them. He spent time with them so they would see know and trust him. The Pharisees, they had a, not a terrible goal of restoring and preserving Israel by living by the law, but Jesus wanted to restore the purpose of Israel by fulfilling its mission and God's mission for all the world to see him, know him, and share life with him in trust of him and his way of living. And remember how that was God's mission from the beginning? Like, we're going to Hey, people, we're going to share this earth and make it awesome together. And Jesus restores that mission. And it's now about the restoration of all things, the restoration of the world. And this is the kingdom of God that he was preaching about as he was going around Israel at the time. And the cool thing is he's inviting us into that. He's inviting the worst people into that, whatever you define as worst. And that includes Levi. Levi answers the call and when I say he's inviting him into it, he's inviting him to also do that work. And Levi throws a party. He throws this big banquet and he says, come, hail my friends. I've heard some really good news from this guy, Jesus, and I want you to hear it too. That's what's so surprising about Jesus to the people who just saw the law in their days. Jesus doesn't merely open the door for people. He actually goes out and seeks them. Jesus is a pursuing God. He's going out looking for people to invite, to include, and to transform. And he's always about this. And it starts with him merely striking up relationship with people. You know, we like to say, we've, you may have heard this at Pacific City a few times. It's not about religion. Religion is, I follow the rules, and therefore I'm loved. But relationship with God through his grace is, I'm loved And then I can follow the rules and live according to the best ways that he has for us. God's kingdom is so much bigger than anyone in the first century could have expected. His kingdom is so much bigger and more inviting than we can really know and imagine. And it's an ongoing pursuing mission to restore the earth and all people. And we always want to ask, and we've been praying about this, Nicole and Chris and I, for years. How can we be a part of that? How can Pacific City Church be a part of it? As we say every week in our announcements, you know, one of our three main goals here is to love the world. How can we join Jesus in that? Of course, we want to be a hope, a refuge for people who've been hurt, for people who need some real deep loving healing on a soul level. What if that includes and is also for people who are hated? What if we're a place of refuge, of learning, and growth for oppressors, perpetrators, victimizers? And as we do that, we'll set safe boundaries, of course, that nobody would be re-victimized in our community. But we still want it to be a place where everyone has a chance to come and meet God and know the more, the better, the abundant life that he has for them. God loves them, too. He has better for everyone. And it can be really hard to imagine being a part of restoration like that. If I'm being perfectly honest with you, I've got some categories in my mind of people, it's hard to think about Jesus really loving them according to my broken mind, my human mind. We maybe all have those categories, like fill in the blank. Those people are too fill in the blank. Those people who do fill in the blank That's, I don't know, about forgiveness for them. And God, thankfully, has grace for us and our Pharisee mindsets. But when it's too hard to think about, I want you to think about another example. Something that's awfully present in our world today. White supremacists. It's another category that I'd like to think most of us would give a thumbs down to. How do we react to them in their their vitriol and their hatred. It's probably not a bad idea to counter protest at their rallies. People want to see that there is a countering voice to what they have to preach to the world. But if that's all we do, we might be a little like the Pharisees who are from a distance throwing the rule book and just saying, yeah, you suck. Do something different. But what if we entered into relationship with them? and actually tried to change minds by being together in love while still standing on our truth. You may remember from a couple years ago this shocking story of a man named Daryl Davis. I don't know why it made a media splash after he was doing what he was doing for like 30 years, but I've got a picture of him. He's a black man standing next to a KKK member. He had spent decades befriending Ku Klux Klan members, And one by one, seeing them renounce their membership in that racist hate group. Nobody would deny that he was their enemy and they were his. But why did he do this? Listen to a little bit of what he had to say. And it's a little bit of a longer quote. Some of it, I think, is on the screen or not. But Daryl Davis said, When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, and it doesn't have to be about race, it could be about anything, you will find that you both have something in common. As you build upon those commonalities, you're forming a relationship, and as you build about that relationship, you're forming a friendship. That's what would happen. I didn't convert anybody, he says. They saw the light and converted themselves. And this was in many publications, but NPR National Public Radio buttoned up the story this way. Since David started talking with these members, he says 200 Klansmen have given up their robes. When that happens, Davis collects the robes and keeps them in his home as a reminder of the dent he has made in racism by simply sitting down and having dinner with people. This guy is doing the kingdom of God work. And let that be an inspiration to us when we think, Ugh, some people are too far gone. How could I ever change them? How could I ever be a part of introducing them to the God who can change them from the inside out? But it's happening. Jesus is using people, whether they know it or not. I don't know what Daryl Davis's story is other than this, what fit into the article. But there is kingdom of God in there. People are being restored from full-on hatred to seeing others as the full-fledged, loved human beings that they are. This is territory being reclaimed from the broken way of the world. People can learn to not hate and to not exclude. I'm going to invite our band to come back up. And as I wrap up with just a few other things, we're going to get ready to respond a little bit to God in worship to what he had to say through our scripture this morning. But I just want to say that my prayer for Pacific City Church is that we can each find a way to take part in what Jesus is doing in his work of restoration for the world. That we would do that as a community, we would do that as individuals, that we would be so full of love, God's love, his grace, his compassion for us, that will be brave enough to sit down, to have dinner with, to talk to people that nobody else wants to. And not just the people that it's kind of uncomfortable to be around, but the oppressors and the perpetrators, the victimizers. When God thinks about restoring the world and rescuing the world, like he's reaching down to the bottom And he wants it all for himself. He wants everyone to know the good and best purposes of life in freedom from sin and death. And all the nasty ramifications that those things just wreak on our culture through hatred. People can change. It's not up to us to decide who gets the chance. Just like it wasn't really up to the Pharisees back in Jesus' day. But we can choose to partner with Jesus in seeing that happen. As Daryl Davis sat down and had dinner with people, so Jesus just strikes up conversation. He begins with relationship. He begins with a conversation. And I'm going to invite all of us to just take 30 seconds or a minute And sit in silence and wait to see if God has something to say to each of us. I don't know what that's going to be about. Is it about a little bit of a Pharisee mindset that we have? Is it about feeling like we're on the outside? Is it about how we're a victim and he might have some word of healing for that? Whatever Jesus brings up in this moment of silence, then as we go into our last song our prayer team is going to be up here at the front and I'm going to join them. And if you're wondering like, Oh, maybe did God say something to me just now? Or if he did, and you're not sure what that's about, we'd love to pray with you and listen on your behalf. So let's see what God has to say. And then we can pray for each other as well. Um, So would you just join me in 30 seconds, maybe a minute of listening to God. And if you're so inclined Sometimes it's good to get in a physical posture of receiving from him. Kind of open your hands like this and just say as we begin, God, I'd love to hear from you. And so I'll open us in prayer and we'll wait for a little bit. God, we would love to hear from you. We each need to know more about how we're loved and that you want relationship with us. So come God and speak.